Hi. I'm glad you're here. Uh, there's a lot to discuss today. Um, I want to begin with, uh, with actually a, a very kind of big topic, kind of a, a bit of a far-out topic, uh, which is kind of the, the reality of existence. Is this, is this all real? Is it a dream? Right? Like, uh, it's, a, it's a big question. It's a big question. And just to take a, um, a, a, a Torah approach to this, to see how the, the Torah sort of a, approaches this big subject. And to, to begin with, I just want to start with, uh, with the opening words, a bit of an analysis of the, of the opening words that, that we say when we, when we wake up in the morning. And this is actually designed by the, the rabbis and uh, is very ancient. Um, and these, these are the words that, that they've instructed us to say upon waking up. And if you think about it, it's, it's actually, that, that's a bit far out too, because it's sort of like if, if you sort of did a survey or kind of did some crowdsourcing, like put it out there, like what, what, what is the first thing that you should say every single morning? Imagine the different responses that you would get. I think that would be a great assignment for a class or a teacher to have their students write what, what they feel so is the very first thing that you should say every single morning. I don't know that it's necessarily obvious or that everyone would come up with the same thing. But um, our sages did come up with something. And, and it's, it's something that, that we just kind of rattle off. And in fact, I saw a, a brilliant analysis of the Modani, which we're going to get to in a moment. Um, on, the, on a Chabad web, website, and they talked about, I forgot the, just exactly how the whole complete analysis of it, but the bottom line is, is that they talked about how you're, you're entering into a you're you're entering from a dream state into reality, and so it's almost like it's it's almost like you don't even necessarily know that you're saying it as you're saying it. This wasn't the the full point that they were making, but what they were saying was that that as you're saying it, you're part of the point is you're not even fully conscious of 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 what you're saying. And then there's more to it than that. But just that, that, that notion of bridging the gap from this dream state into this awake state, that these are the words that, that create that bridge, that in itself is, is interesting, just to sort of like situate when we say these words into our level of consciousness as we're saying them. But anyway, the words obviously... Um, are, are meant to be said with a level of intention and consciousness. And the more that we understand them, the more we can get an insight into what our entire approach to life should be. For the reason that, in all beginnings, all beginnings contain, so to speak, the DNA of the, of the, full, of the fullness that's coming. In other words, if you want to look at sort of like a diagram for, or, or a blueprint of the, of the entirety of something, you can see it usually in the very beginning of something. So the beginning of a day, each day is a bit like a lifetime. So if this is how we're starting each day, this is going to give us a bit of a, 
overview of how we should approach all of life, really. So it's, 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 um, there's a lot of bang for the buck in terms of mining the territory of the very first thing that we're instructed to say, because it has a lot of, a lot of information in it. Okay. So the, we begin with these words, Modeh ani lifanecha, which is, Modeh is, is actually the word, uh, same word in Hebrew as Hoda. Hoda means to thank. So, so we begin with this notion of thanks. So we say, we, we, you know, I gratefully thank you, right? Modeh ani. Right? So, so let's go into that for, for a moment. You see, thanks and gratitude are really kind of one of the main secret ingredients to happiness. And I want to just take a moment to discuss something which, which I think is very, very deep. And when I bring it up, it, it, it's a bit of a cliche. But things become cliches because they're so true that they're said over and over again. But the problem is, is that then they stop having any sort of impact because they become so familiar that you don't think about them anymore and you just reject them. So, so there's this weird kind of like uh, tension when it comes to cliches because they're so good that they've become ineffective. <laughs> so they kind of self-destruct. So, but if you kind of get back into the model and approach it from an analytic way that people aren't used to approaching it with, you can breathe new life into it and then mine the goodness of it once again. So with that in mind... Let's look at this idea of the glass being half empty or half full. And so, so just to set up this sort of scientific experiment, you have a clear glass and you fill it exactly halfway. Right? Now, some people, if they're, if they're in the company of, let's say they're more sort of like optimistic type people, and they're in the um, company of pessimistic type people, right? They'll go, ah, you're just seeing the glass is half empty, right? And they just want to kind of dismiss their thing, the, the other person, right? Or if someone feels that they're a realist, right? And that they're in the company of someone who's like a crazy idealist, they'll say, well, you're just seeing the glass is half full, right? But what's so interesting about this example to me of this glass that's filled up midway is it actually is half empty. That is not someone's imagination or bad attitude. It is half empty by definition. According to the experiment that we've constructed, it is in fact half empty. So when they say it's half empty, or if they see it from that point of view, they're seeing reality. They're not making anything up. They're not ev evidencing a bad attitude. It is half empty. But for the person who sees it as half full, they're also not being a Pollyanna or making something up or being spiritual. It is, in fact, half full. 
That's not made up. It's right there. The evidence is 100% there. One half full. Which means, very interestingly, the ball is now in your court. It is now up to you, with your own free choice, how you would like to view it. You see, one of the deepest things that I ever heard, really, about just this world is, is the Hebrew for the word world. The, the, world, the word for world in Hebrew is le'olam, or olam rather, olam. The root of the word olam in Hebrew is ayin lamid mem. Bless you. This word elam also means hidden. And that's fascinating because God is hidden in this world. In other words, the very, if you, if you want to just take an x-ray of this world, God saturates all of existence, but from our eyes, He appears hidden. He appears concealed. This is in order to give us free choice. Because if God was openly apparent, we would perceive Him, we would be like angels, we would perceive His fullness at all times, and we would have no free choice whatsoever. Because if you're standing in front of the glory of God at every single moment, you can't choose the wrong thing. To the extent that you have any free will whatsoever, it becomes inoperative. Because how can you do anything wrong when you're standing in front of the revealed openness of the glory of God? You can't. However, put a person in a world like this, and now remember again, world, olam, is the same word as hidden in Hebrew where God is concealed, where God is hidden in this world, all of a sudden, do I want to do the right thing? Do I not want to do the right thing? Well, let me think about it. (laughs) I have free choice because it's not so openly clear that anyone is necessarily watching me or that anything counts or matters or anything like that. Now, of course, God is here all the time. Everything matters. Everything counts. God loves you at every single moment. But at the same point, to our senses, not so obvious. In fact, I heard the senior rabbi uh, Citron say that how hidden is God in this world? He's as hidden as he can possibly be, whereas if you seek him out, you can still find him. So that's, that's actually a little bit scary, but also very instructive. God is as hidden as he can possibly be where he can still be found. That's, that's okay. So, so if you think that you have to like look kind of hard, well, you're right. But at the same time, once you start seeing the world with godly eyes, then you see him absolutely everywhere. And his presence and his existence and his love and everything like that eventually becomes obvious. But this is, you know, this, this requires thinking and meditating and, and learning and everything like that, exploring the, the amazing aspects of, of nature and just how everything fits together and everything just works so astonishingly. When you reflect on that, you really see that, that God is absolutely everywhere. In fact, the Kabbalists say something very, very important, which is that as revealed as God is and as present as God is, in Olam Atzilus, 
which is Kabbalistically speaking, the highest of the realms, the holiest, highest of the realms, God is 100% equally as present in this realm as well. It's just that it's more concealed. But God is no less present in Olam in this realm, as He is in Atzilus, in the highest spiritual realms. 100% is present. Okay. So, so is the glass half empty or is it half full? Well, you see how even the phrasing of that is misleading. Is it half empty or is it half full? It's, yeah, it is half empty and it is half full. It's not either or. It's both by definition, right? Because we've taken a glass and we filled it exactly 50%. It's not, it, this is what I'm trying to tell you. It's not a question of attitude. It is half empty and it is half full. Now the question is, how do you choose to view it? It's not, a, it's not an attitudinal thing. It's a choice. It's a choice that a person has to make. And now the ball is in your court. And so when the rabbis instruct us to say the very first thing, ani, I, I thank you, God, what is being told to us, what's being communicated to us is a, is a very significant thing, which is we're being taught you must view the world from the perspective of that which you have, not that which you're lacking. And that's a choice. That's a way that you have to condition yourself to see the world through the lens of that which you have, not through the lens of that which you're lacking. And, you, and, and, and again, it's, it's not that you say, well, if I'm lacking anything, I have a bad attitude. No, the glass is half empty. You are, in fact, lacking things. You are not imagining things. If someone tells you, well, you really have it all, you don't have it all. You simply don't. There is a lack. That lack is real. It's not attitudinally based. But the choice is up to you whether you're going to view your own life through the lacking or through the having. Because every single person, no matter how destitute, also has many, many things. Many, many things. So, so, but it's more than that. Because when I tell you that gratitude is really the secret to happiness, or a big chunk of it anyway, it's not just seeing things from the perspective of what you have. That's an important first step. But gratitude is activating that positive attitude. In other words... When you give thanks, it's a two-step process. First, it's an acknowledgement of what you have, and then you're thanking God for it. In other words, you're actively engaging with the blessing of what you have. I want to say that again, because that's, that's very important. When you reach a state of gratitude, which is the critical state of happiness... When you reach this state of gratitude, it's not just going, okay, so I acknowledge that I do have something. Okay, it's true, I do have something. I'm not going to lie to you. These are my legs. 
I have them. I'm not going to lie. Right? But that's not gratitude yet. When you thank God for what it is, when you actively engage in praise of God for that which you possess, that then becomes gratitude. In other words, that then becomes your mindset. It doesn't become just a conceptual sort of thing zipping around your mind and a fleeting thought. You then take that and you enlarge it and it becomes your consciousness. That's the state of gratitude. Actively thanking God, actively appreciating the blessings that you have. And so, so when a person says, Moda'ani lefanecha in the morning, the rabbis have constructed a formula for a person to enter into that active mindset of thanks. So that a person can begin their day not just viewing life from the perspective of the glass being half full, what you actually have, but now actively engaging in that consciousness and thanking God for it. That's, this is a gift. This is a tremendous gift. Now, now let's go a little bit further. Maybe in some ways deeper, but it's another point. But, but, but continuing with this idea. Moda ani, moda also means something else in Hebrew. Moda means to admit. Okay? So, so for instance, you see it in, uh, in Torah learning a lot, like in contracts and things like that, someone will say a moda, meaning I, I admit, I accept what you're saying. So this is different from thanks. It's another level of meaning within the same word. So I want to suggest the following. When you say, you see, Hashem at Har Sinai, at Mount Sinai, when he reveals himself and speaks publicly en masse to the world for the only time in history, the first word that God says is Anochi. Anochi. Now the Ishmitzer Rebbe says something interesting. Anochi means I. Anochi Hashem Elokecha. I am God, your God. That's, what, that's the first words of the Ten Commandments that God spoke at Mount Sinai. Anochi is an interesting word. If you rearrange the letters, the Ishvitzer points out it's, it's the word ani, I, but also this letter chaf, uh, which is a prefix in Hebrew, which means like. Okay? So, so remember, so, so technically speaking, anochi if you look at it from that perspective, it means this is like me. And what he says is something very beautiful, which is that, which is that at Har Sinai, at Mount Sinai, there were so many miracles. It says that we reach this consciousness called synesthesia, which means that we heard colors and saw words, and there was a fire engulfing the mountain. And there was, you know, just this, you know, flowers sprung up and covered the mountains and there was lightning and thunder and you know, just all sorts of incredible miracles. Our souls flew out of our bodies. Amazing, amazing miracles. And so, so Anochi is ani. So the Ishmael says, God was saying, this is only like me. This is only the smallest taste of me right now that you're saying. The tiniest taste of me. But, but again... The reason why I'm bringing this up is that Ani, who is the ultimate I? Who is the ultimate Ani? It's only Hashem. Okay? 
So on another level, when we wake up and we're instructed to say these words, moda'ani, there's another, there's another way you can approach these words. I admit God, moda, to admit, I admit that it's only I, that it's only you. There's only the I of you, right? All that exists is you, God. And so this is, this is, a, this is a beautiful place to be. You know, because, you see, Torah is so deep. When you understand the infinity of God, and, it, and simultaneously, not just the infinity of God, but God's oneness, then you realize there's nothing that isn't engulfed within the oneness of God. Remember, God fills the entire world, He saturates all of existence, and then exists dimensions beyond as well. And that's very important because if you just say God equals the world and the world equals God, that's a different religion, by the way. That's not Judaism. We say God saturates all of existence and exists dimensions beyond as well. It's an important, important thing to have in your mind. So that means all of us, basically, are just, we can just disappear within God. On some level, we have our own unique existence, and that's very real. But then simultaneously, moda'ani, I admit that it's only the eye of you, God. It's only you. And now, now it's, and, 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 and that's the amazing thing, by the way, which is that you never end. All of us are immortal. And by... By what I mean by that is that the soul lives on after 120. And you live on as you. See, that's, that's a very important piece of information to hold on to. Because some people might think that, you know, after my soul leaves my body, I believe that I have a soul. I believe that, that my soul does go someplace. But then I imagine it kind of disappears into God and then I just become obliterated within God, right? But that's not the case. That's not, that's not the Jewish view. The Jewish view is that you maintain some level of consciousness and recognition and, and, and personal identity even as you exist outside of your body, even as you exist within the vastness of God on a spiritual level. So that's very comforting. If you think, you know, Rabbi Ari Kaplan gives an example of software and hardware. You know, imagine that um, you have a file on your computer, right? And then you put in a flash drive, say, and you take, you copy the, the program or whatever it is, the file, onto your flash drive. So, so that, that continues to exist even though it's left the hardware, even though it's left your, your desktop apparatus, right? Your CPU. So in other words, the desktop computer monitor and your big tower and everything like that, that's like a person's body, says Rabbi Kaplan. But the program itself can be extracted from that and it still has all the identifiable elements. I mean, the, the, the entirety, really, the blueprint, all the coding of you, and it can exist outside of the actual physical machinery. And so it is with the soul and the body. When the soul leaves the body, it maintains its integrity. 
and its individuality. But it's now functioning on a much higher plane, on a non-physical plane. So we say, moda ani, which now we're showing has two amazing levels. The first is, we're waking up and we're seeing that which we have. And we're thanking God and we're entering into this consciousness of gratitude. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Yes, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm living within what I have. I'm activating thanks. I'm living in a state of gratitude. Number two, modani. I admit that all that exists is the I. It's only you, God. It's only you. And yet I continue to exist within your oneness, miraculously. Unbelievable. You know, one of the things that we say, the prayer that we say, there's a prayer that we say after we go to the bathroom, because we're just, if you just look at the way the Torah sets up life, we're thanking God for everything at all times, including the fact that our body functions in an orderly way. That's a, an, an amazing thing. And we say, we say the words that, um, let me find the, uh, we say, Rofei kobasar umaflila asos. Blessed are you, God, who heals all flesh and acts wondrously. So the Ramah points out what is this wondrousness that we're thanking God for after going to the restroom? What is the wondrous, the, 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 the neflos, the, the wonders that have just transpired? The fact that the body has all of these cavities, all of these holes, all of these orifices... And that the soul which remains in the body doesn't fly out of these holes. How could it be that the soul, which is a totally spiritual thing, doesn't fly out of the body? It has so many opportunities at all moments. Right? You've got two holes in your ears, in your nose, in your mouth. Every time you open up your mouth, why doesn't your soul just fly out? Just in case you're not getting a full picture of this. Imagine I blow up a balloon and I don't tie the end. I just blow up a balloon and I leave the end open. Now imagine all the air stays in the balloon. <laughs> Would you not agree that that's a miracle? How can it be that the air is staying in the balloon when there's a hole in the balloon that's open? Let it fly out. This is the Ramah. The Ramah is explaining. This is, this, is, this, is, this is us. Somehow our soul stays in our body. Somehow. Somehow... Within God's oneness, we don't disappear. We somehow remain ourselves even amidst the infinity of God. This is a wonder. This is a wonder. Now the end of Modani goes on to say, uh, Rabbi Munasecha, which is translated as, how great is your faith? Now, Everyone who reads this casually or who hasn't been taught this or hasn't really thought about it kind of misses the shift in, uh, I don't know, grammar. The, the pronoun changes. It really should say, and I think this is how all of us, this is what all of us think we are saying, but we'll find out in a moment it's not the case. We think is, how great is our faithfulness? Meaning, we're, we're, you know, or how great is faithfulness? Something like this. But it doesn't say that. It says, how great is your faithfulness? In other words, the Alexander Rebbe explains 
How much is, does God believe in us? We extol your faithfulness, meaning God's faithfulness in us. In other words, every morning when we wake up, we thank God, and then we get sort of like if, if you, if you, a, a vote of confidence that God has in us, meaning to say what we're, what we're acknowledging is that, you know what, God? If you're actually giving me another day in this world, you must really believe in me. That's what we're saying, very simply. How great is your faithfulness in us that you've given me another day because you believe in me. You believe in me, God. You see, you know what's so funny? It, look, it's a mitzvah, it's a commandment, we have to believe in God. We have to believe in God. But you know what? Having said that, if you don't believe in God, on a big level it doesn't matter because God exists no matter whether you believe in Him or not. <laughs> you see, we think in our own solipsism, that's the right use of that word, that, or our own vanity certainly, that God exists to the extent that we believe in Him. <laughs> that somehow God's existence is contingent on our believing in Him. And then we think, God, you owe me so many favors because I'm believing in you. I'm, I'm, I'm activating you. I'm creating you, God. Right? Nothing could be further from the truth. When we believe in God, it does serve a function because it reveals the presence of God. In other words, God is here no matter what. But believing in him is actually very spiritually important because it reveals that God is here. But if someone doesn't believe in God, God is there no matter what anyway. And even further than that, God continues to keep alive the person who doesn't believe in him. As an ultimate gift. I mean, how great is God that he allows all these people who say that he doesn't exist to live and to pay their rent and to, you know, meet nice people and drink good wine, you know? I mean, God's, God's pretty nice. If you think of it on that level. Um, but anyway, let's get back to this idea, how great is God's belief in us? So every single day that we wake up, we say, God, you, you believe in me. You've given me another day. That's, that's really beautiful. That's really beautiful. How much God believes in us. Now, there's a very important teaching from Reb Labela Eger who says that when Sarah laughed when she heard that she was going to have a baby at a very old age, that it seemed to be a sign of disbelief. And she denied that she laughs because she's all kind of freaked out when she gets called on it. You know what I mean? And, 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 and Reb Labela Eger explains that, no, what she meant was not that she didn't believe in God, that she didn't believe in herself. She thought maybe she's going to do something that's going to mess up this blessing or something like this. And God says back to her, no, you, you, you did laugh, meaning to say you really didn't believe in me. And Reb Labela Eger explains that, that because God believes in you, you also have to believe in you. That an aspect of believing in God is believing in yourself because God believes in you. 
So here, when we say every single morning, how great is your faithfulness, how great is your emuna? Emuna is the word that's used, emuna secha. How great is your emuna? How great is your faith in us, God? You believe in us, you've given us another day. That means that we have an obligation to believe in ourselves too, because God believes in us. So, do you see all the wonderful thoughts that, that, that we're supposed to start each day with? Gratitude, thanks, choosing to see the world through that which I have, admitting on the most cosmic level that all exists within is, is God himself, that God believes in me, that I also have to believe in me. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? This is what we're saying every single morning, but it's even deeper than this. Because why does God believe in me? Why does God believe in you? So, for a lot of reasons, but I'll suggest one, that God puts a piece of himself in you. That's your soul. So God believes in himself. (laughs) Right? Surely God believes in his own existence. And he's put part of himself in you. So of course he believes. He knows what you're capable of. Because that's him. So, wow. You know? You know, can you imagine? I, I, I read something in the, uh, on the internet a, a few years ago. A guy had a coin. And it was a rare coin. And it was worth, I don't know how much money, something like $100,000, approximately. Maybe it was worth a little bit more or a little bit less. Maybe it was worth a few hundred thousand dollars. I'm not sure. And he's trying to figure out how can he transport this coin and not get robbed. So he decided that he was going to wear sandals and shorts and a t-shirt. <laughs> and he figured if he looked like, just like, kind of like a casual, kind of like hiker type guy, no one's going to think that he's holding on to like this incredibly rare coin. And he said that in an interview, you know? And so... You know, all of us are holding on to... If that coin is valuable, can you imagine if God says, listen, I'm giving, you a, I'm giving you a piece of me to transport through this world. Don't lose it. <laughs> like, how, how should we think of ourselves that we've been entrusted to be this courier of God's? The guy says, here, take this. And you know something? You're going to have to take it into some gnarly situations. Right? You're going to have to take it. You're going to take it through some good times, birthday parties, things like this. You're going to have to also take it through some funerals and things like that. You're going to have to take it during hirings and firings. (laughs) You know? Just hold on to it, though. Don't lose it. Don't lose it. Hold on to it. Hold on to it. It's really valuable. But the level of trust that God has tr- entrusted each of us with is very great if you think about that. Because what could be more valuable than God himself? So, so now I want to go a little bit further into this, uh, into this idea. You know, we said that 
we're saying, Mode ani. I admit that it's just the I, just I, meaning you, God, that all that exists is you, God. So, so that's, that's deep. That's deep. And um, it really touches on this theme that I wanted to get into some, some more, which is what is the nature of this world itself? Is it a dream? Is it real? If all that exists is God, what, what's going on? And, 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 and what should our attitude be toward it? So I want to tell you a story. It's actually in today's Sunday New York Times Magazine section. And uh, I had a chance to read it. Uh, they call it uh, Super Duped. A world-renowned physicist meets a gorgeous model online. They plan their perfect life together. And uh, it was also uh, called the, the case of the physicist, the bikini model, and the suitcase. <laughs> okay? So I'm going to tell you, tell you this story, which is the following. This man is a very brilliant man. He's a physicist. He's in his 60s. He's a professor at the University of North Carolina. And he's a Nobel uh, laureate, Nobel Prize winning level physicist. He hasn't won the Nobel Prize. But he's co-authored papers with multiple Nobel Prize winners in physics. So he's certainly on track to win the Nobel Prize, even though he hasn't won one yet, and may not win one, but just to show you the echelon and the, and the level of the type of people he's working with, he's working with Nobel Prize winners, right? And it's just so serious, super high-level physicist in his 60s, right? He's divorced, lonely, goes online, and uh, starts corresponding with this uh, young bikini model, in, in uh, Europe, he thinks. This European woman, right? And uh, they're corresponding for, a re- for like a, a lot, like back and forth, like all the time, all, this, all these things, you know? And, um, but no phone calls, no phone calls, no Skyping or anything like that. Just, so, anyway. And you might ask yourself the question, why would a young internationally famous bikini model be interested in a man in his 60s, right? But maybe you think, well, he's a genius that for certain people carries a, you know, some level of, of appeal. So maybe there's some logic to it. But anyway, it's, it's worth asking yourself that question. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, um, so... After uh, a period of, I think, months of them going back and forth, uh, and again, never speaking on the phone or anything like that, she says, listen, I'm going to be doing a a shoot in in Buenos Aires. And sends him, uh, says, I'm going to send you a ticket. You know? So she sends him a ticket. And he gets, he goes to, somehow the ticket is all messed up. He ends up going to, to, to Toronto, which... You know, that's 
from South Carolina is like all the way north and he's going to South America. That in itself is very bizarre, but then the ticket gets messed up further, but he finally works it out or, or they finally work it out and he, he gets to Buenos Aires, but after, after she's already left. Now she's doing another uh, shoot on some exotic beach someplace else. And she tells him, oh, you know, I'm really sorry that we missed each other. I'll send you another ticket and you'll meet me in this next location. But I forgot a suitcase. Can you transport this suitcase for me? Right? So, oh, okay. All right. So anyone who uh, has taken a single flight in their life, right, like all the alarm bells should be going off right now, right? Especially in South America to transport a suitcase, right? So he says, sure, of course, you know, he's incredibly in love, you know, genuinely in love with her. And uh, she's pledged her love to him as well, many times, multiple times. They're planning out their life. They've planned out their life together. And um, he, he, in a shadowy way, some strange people give him a suitcase. Like, and you think that, he's, he says that he thought it would be like one of these Louis Vuitton bags, like what he would imagine like a top supermodel would, would, would own, something like this. It's like a kind of like an like a shabby old black suitcase, right? Very nondescript. So he calls a friend of his, and the friend says, "Are you crazy? This is all a setup. You've never even spoken with her. This is all a setup. This is for you to transport drugs. Don't you understand this?" And he thinks to himself, it can't be, no, this is real. But he, I, I think he checks the suitcase first. I, I don't remember, it's a very long article. I'm, I'm not sure I saw that detail, but I imagine he did check it first. But anyway, uh, he then figures to himself, you know what, I'm not going to go to this next location uh, that she's telling me to go to. I'm going to go back to North Carolina. And then, if she really wants to see me, and she really wants her suitcase back, which, by the way, he asked her, why does it look like such a strange old suitcase? She explains to him that um, it has sentimental value. <laughs> which I love. I mean, I have a lot of things with sentimental value, but I don't know if I have any suitcases with sentimental value. But anyway, then again, I'm not a supermodel, so who knows? <laughs> But, but anyway, so, so, so he decides that he'll take it back to North Carolina, and if this way, if she really wants to see him, to get her suit, if she really wants her suitcase, she's going to have to see him. That's his logic. So what happens? He books his flight to North Carolina, and uh, he gets arrested. The suitcase is filled with cocaine. And he gets thrown into prison in South America, a South American prison. This 60-plus-year-old Nobel-level physicist is in jail with, like, South American drug addicts and dealers and things like this. 
And he's saying, I didn't know, I didn't know. And the way the article paints him is that he really is like this very flighty professor type who... And, and the, the inmates, you have to picture this, the inmates are trying to... These are hardened drug careerists, right? Are saying to him, you were not communicating with the supermodel. Do you, wake up, old man. Do you realize that there's some guy on the other end of this thing that the entire time is playing you for a fool? Don't you, don't you understand that? You know? You, you never talked with that picture that you think that you talked with once. And he couldn't get it out of his mind. Couldn't, couldn't stop, couldn't believe that, actually and kept on appealing to the authorities, saying that it was a mistake, that he didn't know, that he wasn't consciously trying to smuggle drugs. And um, after a, a, a kind of a, a longer-than-you-would-expect period, he was given house arrest, meaning to say he could live in someone's home, so, and, and, you know, he really is a genius, so he just, you know, kind of works on physics all day anyway. So, so now he could live kind of like a normal life in someone's home. And he was, they did the court case. He was convicted. And you can read the article. There were reasons to believe that he may have known toward the end that this was more suspicious than, than it seemed. You can make up your own mind as to what degree of complicity he may or may not have had in it. That's, that's not the point of why I'm telling you this. But, um, so he was, he was convicted, and he was given something like eight months, but he's doing it under house arrest, which, you know, thank God, are much more comfortable living conditions and working. And so that's, that's where it's at right now. So I finished this article, and I thought to myself, you know what? We're all the professor... And the world is the bikini model. <laughs> you know, we look at this world and we think this world really is this world. <laughs> and we've bought into this <laughs> elaborate scam on some level. And even as people are saying to us, it's, it's not real. It's not real. We're like... <laughs> clinging to this idea, no, she really loves me. It really is a bikini model. <laughs> you know, there's a great book by uh, Gil Locks, uh, and he talks about his road to uh, Torah, and he had this, it's called the Guru of Central Park, or the Central Park Guru. Um, maybe it's the Guru of the Old City, I mean, from old city, from Central Park Guru to Old City Jew, I think that's the name of it. Anyway, Gil Locks, L O C K S, one of the great books I've ever read, and just phenomenal stories. And uh, he was a legitimate guru in India at one point, like like meditating for something like twenty hours a day, like really, like really extraordinary. And he tells the story about at one point when he was sort of at a, the height of his guru phase. You know, now he is at the stands at the hotel and puts tefillin on people. 
you know, he's really an amazing person. Um, and, uh, and he says that a woman came up to him at, 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 one, at one point, and uh, he was busy, he was going from one place to another, and she started to tell, to tell him her problems, and he said to her, I'm paraphrasing, uh, but the, the, he, he said to her, you know, I'm, I'm actually busy right now, I'm in a hurry, I, I, but, but let me just tell you, all of your problems stem from the fact that you've convinced yourself that you actually exist. <laughs> So, so the question is, at the end of the first paragraph of Elenu, we say these amazing words, in ode, there is nothing other than you, God. So how, how seriously do we take those words? In ode, there's nothing other than you. How, how seriously do we take those words? So I heard Rabbi Beryl Wine say that it's, there's a debate, two opinions, between the Ari and the Vilna Gon. That the Ari says, you know, ultimately there is no reality to this world. Whereas the Vilna Gon says, no, 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 this world is very, very real. So what is our responsibility? What is our approach? And... Um, And so the answer is it's a tightrope walk. Because if I yell at you, your feelings are going to be hurt. And that's very, very, very real. That's very, very, very real. If someone is in need, they're really in need. And you have to help them. Their need is very, very real. If someone needs a level of encouragement and you have the ability to pick them up, that need is very, very, very real. If someone needs some support or some help and you're in a position somehow to provide it, you must provide it. You must provide it. You know, one of the mitzvahs in the Torah is that if there's someone whose donkey is sort of like overloaded and it's just it can't carry its burden, that you have to help that person. And if there are two people in that situation, and one is your friend is one, and one is your enemy, that you have to help your enemy first. It's a Torah mitzvah. So, so yeah, it's real. This world is real. And if we, if we make ourselves insensitive to another person's suffering, and then you want to have the chutzpah, to say that I'm being spiritual because none of this exists, that is the most anti-Jewish thing imaginable. It's the essence of anti-Jewish. Oh, you don't exist and I don't exist, so see around. And I'm being very spiritual because I just heard this amazing talk. Ridiculousness itself. Callousness itself. So this world is very real. And we have very real obligations and responsibilities that we must, must fulfill. On the other hand, simultaneously, all that exists is God. And God is running the show on the deepest level. Even though we have free choice. And how do those two things correspond? And how can I have free choice if God is really running the show? You know what? Don't worry about it. 
It's true. You have free choice, and God is running the show. Don't worry about it. You know? They're both true. In the book, Holy Brother, and I actually had the honor of meeting the the person who wrote this uh, a few years ago. Someone writes one of the chapters in the book, and if if you don't have Holy Brother, you have to get that book by Yitta uh, Halberstam. Amazing, amazing book. A treasure of a book. So, so, um, someone wrote that uh, their, their son asked them, is this world, or, is this world uh, real or is it a dream? And the dad said, the father said, well, let's ask uh, Reb Shlomo Karlbach. And Reb Shlomo answered, this world is real in God's dream. And that classic Reb Shlomo how he put so simply mountains of depths in just a few words. This world is real in God's dream. And so, and so a person really has to calibrate their moods and they have to calibrate their consciousness. They have to know that there are levels that are expected of them and things that we have to be responsible for, that God believes in us and that God has charged each one of us with a mission which is a real mission that we have to do our very, very, very best in order to realize in this world. On the other hand, we have to also know that it's all good because we're subsumed in God's goodness. You know, and that all God is asking us to do is just to try our best. That's it that ultimately we don't have control of the results, but we are responsible for the effort and we'll be held accountable and we'll be held accountable. But that ultimately, 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 moda'ani, all that exists is the eye of God. And so this is really the tightrope walk that we have to walk down in life to balance these two things. And one is something that our level of the reality of the world and our responsibilities is that which is designed to keep us focused and productive and caring, but then also to know when to allow that release valve to go off and to get rid of some of the pressure and to understand, yeah, yes, all true, but also moda'ani. I admit that it's only you, God. Okay, Hashem should bless us all. We should all be successful.